We are going to be in Titus 3. We're finishing the book of Titus today. Titus 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 15. The foolish, the factious, and the fruitful. How do you like that title? Titus 3. Father, thank you for every soul that's come into this place today. We're just so grateful to be together again. We don't take for granted another beautiful day where we can wake up and your mercies are new, fresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Thank you that when we worship you in spirit and in truth, we're told in scripture that you inhabit the praises of your people. There's something beautiful, something I think quite unique about corporate worship. Nothing like it in all the world. And it's a foretaste, Lord, of what's ahead when we will be in your presence. Hebrews even tells us that you will sing what a day that will be. Until that day comes, Lord, we're told in the book of Titus, even though we're saved by grace, to be people who are godly. We've been defining that as a God-centered life or a God-dominated life. And that's what we want to be, Lord, and we know that that's a process, and part of how that works is we hear your word, and your word shapes and changes and feeds and molds and challenges even some of the ideas that we had maybe even for a long time as Christians. So we just want to open our hearts today. We open our ears today. We want to hear what you have to say and then make sure that our lives line up with the truth of your word. Your word, the psalmist says, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. How we need that illumination, Lord. How we need that direction. So speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're finishing a uh, book of the Bible, only three chapters, and we've called the overall book Grace and Godliness. One of the great statements on grace in all the New Testament is found in verses 4 through 7 of Titus 3. Actually, let's go back uh, to verse 3. It says, We also once were foolish ourselves, Titus 3, 3, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, Titus 3, 5. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. If you haven't written in your Bible there, write John 3, 3 through 5, because that's a great description of being born again right there. You receive the washing of regeneration, that means to regenerate, to make new, and you are renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus when you're born again of the Holy Spirit. The old is gone, the new has come. Whom he poured out upon us, verse 6, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified, there's a key theological word, justification. It means in Greek to be declared righteous before God. That when you stand before God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, you are now justified. Scholars have said a good way to define that word is just as if you've never sinned. 
But it's even more powerful than that. It actually means that you have right now, if you are a Christian, the righteousness of Christ credited to your account by faith. And it's called the great exchange of the cross, and I don't think we can say it too many times. The great exchange of the cross means this. When Christ died and you received Christ as your Savior, all of your sin went to Him and all of His righteousness comes to you. That's an incredible, amazing gift. I'm not sure that I walk in that reality every day just to be quite candid. Uh, I've been trying to really get my arms around that for the last 30 years. (laughs) That I'm saved by grace, by grace, by grace. But I'm a forgiven man and you're a forgiven person if you are in Christ. In fact, you are justified. How? Look at verse 7. By His grace. Grace is a gift. It's a good way to to, uh, define the word. Grace is a gift. It can't be earned or even deserved. It's just simply God's grace. We were justified by His grace that we might be made heirs. And this is the other beauty of who you are in Christ. You are now a co-heir with Christ according to the hope of eternal life. In the, in the New Testament, the word hope is elpis, E-L-P-I-S. It doesn't mean I hope so. It means I know so. The hope of eternal life is fixed, sure, trustworthy. So we have this hope, and Paul rounds out this section by saying this, all of that that he's spoken in those verses there, and you could say even really the whole book uh, up to this point, this is a trustworthy statement. The immediate context, of course, is this great salvation statement that we've just read in verses 3 through 7. This is a trustworthy statement. Just in case you are wondering, could it really be true? Could it really apply to me? Maybe I'm the exception. Maybe everybody else is saved by grace except me. No, it's trustworthy. You can take this to the bank. This is a trustworthy statement. And Paul said this um, in 1 Timothy 1, and he was even talking about his own life, and he said, I was once ignorant. I was once, you know, even a persecutor of the church. And this is a trustworthy statement. God came to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. I'm the chief of sinners. So just in case you thought you couldn't be saved, take a look at me, says Paul. I was once Saul. I persecuted the church. I was there when Stephen was killed. I really hated Christians. I hated what the church stood for, what Paul would say, but this is trustworthy. We're saved by grace. And concerning these things, verse 8, I want you, Titus, but I, I think we could say of all Christians and Uh, I think specifically here, pastors, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, that's Christians, Christians are those who have believed God, may be careful. Now here's where we move from doctrine to duty. May be careful to engage in good deeds. And we've been saying that throughout the book of Titus, we want to make sure we have the order correct. First comes grace, then godliness springs from grace. Godliness is one of the characteristics of a life in love with Jesus Christ. It is a person who realizes that uh, I do what I do as a thank you note to God's grace. I don't do what I do to get saved. I'm already saved. I do what I do because of this great gift that I have received. How could I do any less, I think, is part of what goes on in the Christian's heart. So, uh, this is what we need to be doing. We need, we've believed God, now we need to be careful to engage in good deeds. Verse 8, these things are good and profitable for men. Now, that's all recap, and we've had um, a lot of different uh, 
experiences in the book of Titus, but I just want to sum up really quick these areas where it tells us to uh, engage in good deeds. Just look back at uh, verse 7 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, In all these things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine dignified. Go to 2.14. It says, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. What should we be? Zealous for good deeds. Look at 3.8. 3.8 says we should be careful to engage in good deeds. We just read that. And then look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Let our people learn, this implies a process, and that's good news for all of us, learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs. You can see that the New Testament is filled with these kinds of admonitions that you're saved by grace, but it doesn't end there. Now you want to do good deeds. We were up on our elders retreat last weekend and we spent some time in prayer and vision for not only the coming year, but you know maybe even the next five or 10 years. And we, Mike Rizzi led us in a devotion where we looked at the parable in Matthew 25 of the talents. And one was given, what was it, uh, five, two, and one. And one of, the, one of the, the persons who was given this talent, he dug a hole in the ground and left it there and just basically covered it up and did nothing. And he was treated as a non-believer. You wicked slave. You should at least have put my money in the bank that I might have got some interest. And this owner goes on a long journey. When he comes back, the, the one who had the five made five more. The one that had the two made two more. The one who buried it showed that he was not a believer. Then the great section comes in Matthew 25, if you want to just note this, in 31 through 46, where Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was sick and you came to me. I was in prison and so forth and so on. And, and the righteous will say, when did we see you in this condition, sick or thirsty or hungry? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. There's a lot of people that say, oh, is that section, does that section teach that you're saved by works? No. But what it teaches that works are the inevitable result of a life that's been graced by God. Amen. They're just going to come out. It's, it's the seed of the word of God. You've been born again and now inevitably fruit is going to come out of your life. These could be called the priorities of grace or the good deeds that flow out of a life that has been saved by grace. But we're about to get a but. <laughs> and a few weeks ago I told you that Pastor John's famous line, I'm throwing him under the bus constantly, but anyway, he loves me. I told you that Pastor John, when he's counseling people, says everything that follows but, because there's a lot of people that say, yeah, but, 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 is baloney. Okay? We've almost made that a theological construct. However, it's not necessarily true in all cases. There is a but here, and it's actually biblical. It's right. There is some qualifications to these principles of how we go about living out a life of grace. And here's how you could categorize this. Grace has its boundaries. You might want to write that down. Grace has boundaries. 
Some of us struggle with boundaries. We even need boundaries for our boundaries. I don't even know how to figure that out. (laughs) Apparently, not everything that follows but is baloney. (laughs) All right, here's verse 9. But shun... If you have an ESV, New King James, NIV, it says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now in verse 8, we are told to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable, but there are some things that are unprofitable and literally they are worthless. In fact, they are counterproductive. Ever been in a conversation where you just go, oh my goodness. This is going nowhere good. You ever been in a dispute with a family member? And you're like, this? Pull up, mating! Sometimes the best thing that you can do is take a time out in a discussion. Amen? Now I know there's a Bible verse that says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That verse means try to quickly reconcile problems. But if you're arguing at night, the sun has already gone down. (laughs) Everybody with me? The principle here is not that you have to talk about everything in the moment. Some people need to cool their jets for a little while, get it together, go and pray Go get a frozen yogurt. Then they're prepared to talk. Some people are chasers. We're going to deal with this right now. (laughs) Some people are runners. No, we're not. (laughs) In marriage, you must find the middle ground. And all God's people said? Yeah. Anyway. You know when it's good truth, right? Some things, look at verse 9, are to be shunned or avoided. And here the first thing listed is foolish controversies. The word for foolish is moros in Greek. It's where we get the idea of being a moron. And I'm not joking. This is the Greek word. If you look it up in a lexicon, the word moros means to be dull or stupid. It means to be a blockhead. (laughs) You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? (laughs) It is biblical to call people blockheads. Just kidding. You should don't do that. But there are foolish controversies. The word controversy here is a Greek word too hard to pronounce, but it means uh, that which is speculative. Uh, It means that which is causing dispute, debate, but it is not a positive, like fruitful debate. It's just a meaningless debate. It's, It's about things that are speculative. It's about things that are weird. You know, there are some people, they spend their life majoring on the minors, Things that good theologians have disagreed about for 2,000 years, not essential doctrine, you know, peripheral kind of stuff. Don't waste your time there. You can do your own study. You can, you can 
go down those rabbit trails and certainly it's worth studying some of those things but in the end if you're going to argue and debate and divide over these things there are some people that they just live on the fringe and, and they want to debate it constantly and at some point you just have to say I'm not going there anymore if you want to talk about the deity of Christ or the Trinity, we'll spend some time there. But even there, some people can get so ridiculous that it becomes unfruitful. Matthew 7 is the classic, let's turn there together. Matthew 7 is the classic text on judge not, lest you be judged, right? Every unbeliever knows this text, Matthew 7. I've heard that it surpassed John 3.16 in terms of that the whole world knows this text and we need to understand it. Jesus did say in Matthew 7 verse 1, do not judge lest you be judged, but he was talking about a certain type of judgment and it becomes clear what he's talking about. He says, for in the way that you judge, Matthew 7 2, you will be judged and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, Matthew 7, 3, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Matthew 7, 4, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Now, if you have a log in your eye, using the metaphor that Jesus gave, a log, imagine if you had a telephone pole coming out of your eye, and you were trying to investigate other people's eyes. Poof, 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 you'd be... You'd be knocking people all around. You first got to remove the pole, the plank out of your eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to do what? To remove the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, the text is not saying don't judge. It's just saying make sure you look at your own life before you start passing judgment on everybody else. You'll be able to see clearly if there's a speck in your brother's eye once you take the pole out of your own eye. It's not saying don't judge. It's just saying don't judge key hypocritically. That's what's forbidden. Don't be a hypocrite when you judge. If you're doing the same thing that you're accusing the other person of, you better first look at your life because you might have a telephone pole in your eye. Take that out first and then you'll be able to see clearly. That's why Jesus says next, you hypocrite, First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then notice what happens. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or pigs, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, this, this to me says that when you are interacting with folks, you have to, you need discernment about what you put before people and how they're going to treat it. And if you put your, if you give a pig pearls, it has no idea about the value, right? It's just going to probably roll around in the mud a little bit more and oink a few more times, right? It doesn't know value. Or you're going to be trampled or what you say is going to be trampled or you'll be torn. Dogs and pigs in Jewish society were the least, uh, they were looked down on the most as unclean and unholy. And then notice what Jesus says. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Context, interesting, isn't it? Context, how you deal with people. How much to say and not to say. When to maybe pull back and say, you're not ready to hear this, or I'll be praying for you. 
It seems to me, at least in this particular setting, that the ask, seek, and knock has to do with interactions with people and not getting into ridiculous, unprofitable, speculative discussions that are going to produce no fruit. Everybody with me? Back to Titus. So, Christians are to engage in what is profitable. And it's not always easy to know, is it? Sometimes you, you got to test the waters a little bit. You push on doors. You see if someone's open to spiritual things. And if they're not, then sometimes you just have to say, I'm just going to pray for that person. And you may look for a future opportunity, but uh, we need discernment on these things, right? Uh, we were in a pastor's meeting some months ago, and Pastor Brian, we were talking about to-do lists. Everybody got their to-do lists, right? And he said he read a pastor recently who said we should also have a to-don't list, Pretty cool, huh? Because we're, we're big on our to-do list. Got to, got to do this, 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 this. How many of you are bullet point people? Boom, 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 boom. Right? Well, how many of you have a to-don't list? Just a few of you. <laughs> anyway, it's not a bad idea. When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, Proverbs 29.9, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. When a, when a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, it seems like it can often go south, right? Walter Martin said, controversy for the sake of controversy is sin. Controversy for the sake of truth is a divine command. And we need to know the difference. What are foolish controversies? Well, in these verses, if you look at verse 9 again in Titus 3, they're about genealogies. Uh, apparently, there were some Jewish teachers and rabbis that got into these weird family trees and genealogies and reading between the lines and all of that. And they, were into, they got into strife. It's, it's people who just want to argue for the sake of arguing and disputes about the law. Paul says when someone uses the law, the law lawfully, it's good. But if you lose, use the law unlawfully, all you do is mess with people. The law has become our tutor to drive us to Christ because we're saved by grace. So if you use the law lawfully, look, the law still applies. We shouldn't murder people, right? As Christians, that still applies. But Christ has fulfilled the law. He's become the end of the law. And in the first century, we know there were people going around and they were saying, oh, you got to keep the law to be a Christian. And look, you can keep the, the essence of the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there are many discussions that just become, look at the end of verse 10, uh, they become, or uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, they become un unprofitable and what? Worthless. They become worthless. Now that's the setting for verse 10. Verse 10 says, reject a factious man. Verse 10, reject a factious man, a person who stirs up division after a first and second warning. Apparently with a factious person, you don't even need to count to three. So for parents, uh, this is really good news. <laughs> All right, so when little Johnny's, don't even count to three, it's only two now, okay? You can write that down, you can quote me. One, two! <laughs> you don't even need a three. That's really not the context, but I thought maybe there would be an application. We're to reject a factious man, and I think here this is a false teacher in the context a person who stirs up division, ESV, after a first and second warning. 
The SV and NIV says, have nothing to do with him after he's warned. Two warnings. The word for factious here is hereticos, which is where we get the word heretic. But at this point in history, the word didn't mean what we, it came to be known as. A heretic was someone who held a strong-willed opinion and upon confrontation with truth would not change his mind. And then the church in history said that's, that person's a heretic because that person's been warned and they, they hold on to their heresy. But the early form of this word was a person who, despite being warned, kept going the way that they were going. They kept causing problems. They kept stirring up division. They simply refused the warnings. And at some point, it becomes unhealthy for you to be around a person like that. The person, notice, is to be rejected or the person just have nothing to do with them. Because here's why it says, knowing that such a person or such a man, and I think specific context is the false teachers on Crete, on the island, is perverted, ESV, he's warped, and is sinning and is self-condemned. Now, sometimes, as one writer put it, it seems divisive to separate from divisive people. We look at ideas like this and we go, wow, that doesn't seem Christian. But you know what? Sometimes certain people are actually toxic. And not only are you doing something that's worthless and unproductive, but it may be even hurting you. We have uh, students that go off to universities and they've been grounded in the faith their whole childhood and they get exposed to ideas that undermine their faith. Now, I'm not saying that our young adults and people going off to college should not have to grapple with what they believe and why they believe it. But I, I also believe that at some point we have to say, I'm not going to expose my student to poison if it is ruining their faith. And the false teachers, chapter 1, verse 11, were ruining entire households. They were shipwrecking the faith of people we see in the other pastoral epistles. And in that case, that relationship has become now toxic. Such a person is perverted, warped. The idea of the Greek word suggests that that person has been taken over or is being used by Satan to cause divisions. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you. Division has to, is the word schisma. It means to tear or split. It means to divide. This is where the enemy loves to live. He loves to live in places of division, right? To get people focused on peripheral ideas or doctrines so that now the house becomes divided and becomes ineffective. And Paul says, look, if you want to be effective on the island of Crete, you got to watch out for this stuff. Because you can become so distracted with these ideas that you lose your witness where you are. You ever been there before? All of a sudden you get sidetracked on these peripheral rabbit trail doctrines and now you're not witnessing to anybody anymore and it's, it's, it's just kind of taken over uh, the whole thing. This is where the enemy loves to live and over sillier things uh, often than this. Uh, Jude, verse 19, only one chapter says, these are the ones, false teachers, who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. All right. So we have the foolish, the factious, and we'll, we'll talk about the fruitful in, this, in a second. 
But the factious factions are those, and it's on a lot of the vice lists, who cause enmities and strife. And there's just constant tension. That's not where the Lord wants the church to be. That's not where the Lord wants your family to be. He doesn't want you to be in turmoil. He wants unity so that the world will know. Doesn't mean that we can't debate stuff. But ultimately, the church is a unified family. Verse 12, Titus 3. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. Now, Paul apparently wanted Titus to come to him on this, uh, this place called Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Uh, my understanding of this particular place is it was a place founded by Augustus when he won a victory over Mark Antony. If you look at Nicopolis, it's the word where we get Nike or victory, and polis is the word for city. So uh, this, we don't know a ton about the island, but it was a, it was a place where Paul was going to winter. And so he says, I'm sending Artemis and Tychicus, and I think Artemis and Tychicus were for relief for Titus to come to Paul and get a break from the island of Crete. Uh, the island of Crete was a tough place to minister, and so apparently he was going to go to Paul, and he was sending in reinforcements. Amen? <laughs> Sometimes we just simply need a sabbatical. Send in reinforcements, right? And so I think this is part of what's going on. Uh, Artemis and Tychicus. We, don't, we know a lot about Tychicus. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. Artemis, we know nothing about him, but we conclude, and this is based upon something that was written um, by Gordon Fee, that probably Artemis ended up there uh, in place of Titus, at least for a time. Verse 13, diligently help Zenos the lawyer. Now you might want to write in your Bible there, help a lawyer, question mark. I mean, sorry, I couldn't resist that one, but anyway. Who's Zenos the lawyer? I don't know. We don't know a whole lot, but we know this, that Paul apparently surrounded himself with lawyers and doctors. Luke was the beloved physician. Zenos was the lawyer, and he even knew a man who was a, a treasurer of the city. Pretty cool. Paul had relationships with people in every sphere of life. And Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, we know Apollos was that man from Alexandria. He was uh, very mighty in the scriptures. Priscilla and Aquila helped him in the way of truth more accurately. And it would appear that Zenos and Apollos brought the letter to Titus. So these are the delivery guys. They brought the physical letter to Paul. These things had to be hand-delivered. No UPS back in the day, by the way. You couldn't FedEx anything. So you had to send a team of people to deliver something. And these were the men that delivered it. And they took a risk and journeys were tough. And Zenos and Apollo show up with the letter. And Paul says, look, they've delivered the letter. I want nothing lacking for them. Make sure you take care of them and supply their need. Look at verse 14. Let our people, that is Christians, the family of God, also learn... Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment. So it takes some time to learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. The church is to be fruitful. And one of the ways that we are fruitful is to engage in good deeds and to meet, what's your Bible say? Pressing needs. Needs, not wants. The church has been in the business for 2,000 years to try to help people. And you guys are so generous 
It seems like every time there's a need, whether it's down in Mexico or we have to help a single mom or money needs to be raised for a missions trip, you guys help. And God is pleased with that kind of thing. He's pleased when we do good and share with others. And that is that we live a life that's not unfruitful. We want to live a life that's fruitful. Now, I want you to turn to your Bible. We're almost done to Genesis 49, first book of the Bible. I want to just quickly sketch for you, and we're finishing up the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. And the story about chapter 37 turns to a man named Joseph. And most of you know Joseph's story. He was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers because he had that cool technicolor coat, right? Coat of many colors. Dad didn't seem to hide that, you know, he was a favorite son. He was born from Rachel, the firstborn from his true love. And so the brothers sold Joseph into slavery and from the age of 17 to 30, and there's a little debate on this, but from 17 to 30, Joseph spends at least a good portion of that time in prison falsely accused. Sold into Egyptian slavery, falsely accused, and languished in the jail, or at least was in the, the jail for quite a long time. His father, at the end of his life, on his deathbed, begins to prophesy over Joseph. And he says these words, Genesis 49:22. And here's what came to mind. Even if your story has been filled with bumps and false accusations and difficult betrayals, God turned it together for good, and here's what happened to Joseph. Joseph, 49.22, is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, that was his life, and shot him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." From the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph." and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Joseph's story was hard, but he became fruitful. Let me ask you right now, if you were to measure your life, let's say, God forbid, you died tonight. It can happen. We're all a heartbeat away from eternity. Let's turn to Titus and we'll finish it. How would you measure your life right now? Is it fruitful? What does that mean? It means full of fruit. <laughs> I know that's deep. Everybody got that? Fruit. It hit me this week. Fruitful. Full of fruit. You say, why are you talking about fruit, Pastor Michael? Because fruit is an image in the Bible, and this is where we all, we started. Everybody look up at the screen. We started with a life that's a Psalm 1 life. 
A life that meditates on the word day and night and will bear what? Abundant, abiding fruit. Jesus said, stay attached to the vine and you will bear fruit and your fruit will remain. And I'm not talking about just fruit in this life. I'm talking about fruit that you leave behind for generations to come as you raise your family in the ways of Christ. I'm talking about a life that blossoms and not a a bare tree, not a dead tree, not a tree with one apple, you know, just kind of hanging there. A fruitful tree. How do you become fruitful? You become fruitful by staying connected to the one who gives the fruit of the Spirit, right? Those fruits will come out of a life that is connected to the vine. Exodus 23, 30, God said to Israel, I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful. Exodus twenty two thirty. Paul says in Philippians 1.22, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. I want to live a life that is fruitful. And then look at verse 15. So we've moved through the foolish, the factious, and the fruitful. All who are with me greet you. Titus 3.15. Greet those who love us in the faith. I think that means don't say hi to those who don't. Don't say hi to them. Just, just greet the ones that like us. <laughs> greet those who love us in the faith. And then, can we all read this together? Grace be with you all. I was thinking, you know, sometimes when we end uh, communications with people that we care about, we sometimes say, God bless you. And I think that's wonderful, and I do that all the time. But we may want to change... Or at least add this to your repertoire. Grace be with you all. Amen? Amen. 